Welcome to Into Theology. I'm with the Dr. Reverend Ian Clary, and we're looking at a sort of difficult couple of questions in Aquinas, one on the unity of God and one on how God is known by us. So questions 11 and 12 in the first book of the Summa. And we we're just in a conversation, and so I'm going to keep talking where I was. We decided to record because we we're our minds were equally blown by particularly question 12 because question yeah, 11 12. is basically simplicity rehashed but question in a 12 sense, i mean it's it's worth saying though that like there are some distinctions maybe we should just kind of get this out of the way okay. like at the beginning and he's talking about the unity of god uh and i mean uh, th this is this is actually one of the questions uh in the book that i find kind of like frustrating with the way that peter kreeft edited it because i think there's more that should have been included here I recognize that he wanted to keep the book a certain um, size. I was I was reading it at the uh, Aquinas.cc website earlier to get more of the detail, and there's a lot that's going on in here. But um, yeah. you know, he's he, he's wrestling through these questions of God's unity again. Uh, one of the things that I keep noting now, I think, because we keep harping on it jokingly in, in the podcast, is just how often he actually uses scripture as like the key authority to make his arguments. Uh, so obviously the key one. <laughs> I've been was, saying that from the beginning. <laughs> oh, we've all been saying, you know, we, we, the good people recognize this, but um, you know, so he he's going to granted in the first article appeal to Dionysius the Areopagite or pseudo Dionysius uh, uh, as a, from the divine names as a, as an, a source for not being able to add anything to being. Obviously, if there's something that's pure being, you can't add to it uh, because that would add more being, and it would no longer have been pure being. Uh, and then finish, he talks about I interpose and then let you finish. Yep. So at the yeah, end yeah. of end of question twelve, he he also uh, has a very very uh, minimalistic view of what we call natural theology, because dogma for him is based on revealed right. uh, scripture. And the minimalistic thing is is basically a riff on Romans one nineteen. You can know that God exists because of the things that have been made essentially, and know that you are a creature of God. Like that's in some what he's getting at. So. Even just the basic question of like, where's his authority for doctrine lie? It is so abundantly clear that his natural theology is like as far as Paul goes in Romans 1. Right. And therefore his sacred, I think he calls it sacred theology, is in essence what the Bible says. And then based on what it says, what that actually means in accordance with reality and theology. Okay, sorry, keep going. Yeah, well, as as scripture is rooted in reality and makes sense of reality, right? So, um, but then in in so so Kreef then skips the second article and jumps into the third on page one eleven. You know whether God is one, and then his appeal obviously to the key text uh, would be uh, Deuteronomy six four, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and then he gives these three reasons why, uh, based on things that he's already said before. Uh, we should conclude that there's that God is only one. And so there's a relationship between simplicity and unity, although I think there is a distinction between the two. I think some modern evangelical theologians can kind of confuse this. Um, so he, sh he shows from divine simplicity first that if something is simple, it can't be more than one because that would that would imply parts. And if, uh, when he says one, he's not thinking of like one, two, three, four. He, by one, he defines it. One means undivided being. Yeah. When he's reading the Shema, when he's, understand what it means to say that god is one lord or one god he means it in a very like non like non-numerical way yeah it's like almost like there's no composition there's no division it's all that he is is one yeah he's he, he uses socrates as you know your classic example for that right like uh he says uh for it is manifest that the reason why a singular thing is this particular thing is because it cannot be communicated to many or shared with many since that whereby Socrates is a man in terms of human nature, that can be communicated to many, whereas what makes him this particular man is only communicable to one. Therefore, if Socrates were a man by what makes him to be his, this particular man, there cannot be many Socrates. Uh, so there would uh, so there could not in uh, that way be many, many men. Uh, now, this belongs to God alone, for God himself is his own nature, as he's already shown above. Right. So there. So he's showing here that just just like in the language of the of, of the way he's using the word one here it refers to the particular, which is God himself, meaning there can only be one. It's not like a general nature that he shares with others. Uh, and then he argues from the perfection of being and then uh, he argues it from from the uh, the unity of the world. Um, he has a go at whether or not there could be multiple gods or not. And he shows here that there can only be one God uh, because 
if there were two gods and the word if if by definition the word god actually includes in it the idea of perfection um but if there are two different gods then one god would have a perfection and another god would have a different perfection they would not have the same perfection meaning that they would actually be lacking something and uh and so uh, anyway but the the bulk of what i think we should be talking about today is question 12 and how god uh, can be known by us Th this thing it, this is one of these questions where I feel like I will probably read question 12 many times uh, over the years and still kind of come away with new stuff from it. I mean, it's just, it's just. Um, so question 12, how God is known by us in part of his answer. So the question is whether any, uh, the first article is whether any created intellect can see the essence of God. And in his answer, he begins with first John two, two, we shall see him as he is. The point is, since the Bible says we'll see God as he is, we have to, what does that mean? And then he says, since everything is noble according uh, according as it is natural, God who is pure act without any admixture of potentiality is in himself supremely noble. Um, to make sense of that, I'll just quickly read from question 92 where, where he explains a little bit what he means by that. This is from what, the supplement or? The supplement, yeah. So this is the book three supplement, question 92, article one. Which is not in this book. Which is not in this book, yeah. Uh, he says, now a thing is intelligible in respect of its actuality and not of its potentiality. Study Metaphysics 9 of Aristotle. In proof of which an intelligible form needs to be abstracted from matter and from all the properties of matter. Therefore, since the divine essence is pure act, it will be possible for it to be the form whereby the intellect understands. Now, I'm, I'm jumping the gun a little bit in this part of the explanation, but we'll get there. Yep. And this will be the beatific vision. Hence, the master of sentences, which is Peter Lombard in Sentences 2D1, that the union of the body with the soul is an illustration of the, bless, the blissful union of the spirit with God. Meaning, the way in which God made us as the union of body and soul, this chylomorphic composition, is an illustration of the way in which, when we get to heaven, God, God himself can be the form of our intellect. Huh. Now, we'll try to like make sense of that, but it's important that Peter Lombard's illustration, I think, is pretty beautiful, that the body with the soul is an illustration of the blissful union of the Spirit of God, namely that beatific vision. Okay. Which is hard for, I guess, I guess it, what you're reading there comes much later in the Summa, because it, it's going to, it's going to assume some things that by question 12, he hasn't discussed yet. Like, like, I mean, he gets into it a little bit, but really the hylomorphic relation of body and soul he's not going to deal with until the treatise on human nature which is much later but you're reading the compendium or the uh, supplement anyway so yeah uh, i think it might be useful to like i what i told you before just like briefly summarize like what are the well, let me let me kind of bring up my thought right. that i said to you first right, right, right. That, that sparked your your answer so you know normally the way i've kind of like understood knowing god and in large part because of the things that I've learned from Thomas is that uh, because of divine incomprehensibility, um, the human or any created intellect cannot know God. Right. And so that's why we, you know, Aquinas develops things like, you know, uh, knowing God through his effects, uh, negative names, apophatic theology, analog, analogical language, all that kind of stuff to help the mind almost in an indirect way get at something of who God actually is. Um, and then, but what, it's, what he seems to be saying here, though, is that actually, in some sense, the created intellect can actually know the actual essence of God. Uh, but it seems to be that he's saying that the reason now that we can't, and that's why we need all these other tools, is because we're in our kind of creatureliness and in our in our material bodies. But in the uh, in the new heavens and new earth, or in the beatific vision. Um, we're having a pure intellectual knowledge of God that doesn't require our sense perception. And so that kind of like kind of gave me a bit of a pause uh, for, for for my thinking there because I thought, well, that means then it seems like then in some case that the the created intellect can actually know God. But if if it's say in the intermediate state where we don't have our bodies, just our minds, then we have that intellectual knowledge. It makes sense to me because, you know, the intellect, which is, you know, faculty of the soul is not limited by or individuated by the physical body. And so it has a kind of eternality to it. I don't want to, that's probably a bad term there, but something that's like unlimited uh, that the body then sets a limit for. But then what happens in the resurrection when you get your body back? You get your body right. back, you went to the new heavens and new earth, you're material again, meaning then does that screw up your ability to know God? 
in, in a direct sense. And so would that not make the intermediate state a better place to be than to live in the resurrection with your bodies in the new heavens and new earth? So now you right. you actually were on track towards, I thought, towards making the helpful answer to that. I also just think it's worth having the interesting note that we could be Theobros having a conversation about limited atonement right now, which is infinitely more boring. Oh. And less interesting <laughs> these sorts of things. Like we could have just been like smoking just cigars. Something on Twitter or something. I don't know. I just had this thought of like you know you you said something about like I don't know that just triggered like how there's like this fixation on one topic and the Theobros have not moved for like thirty to forty years and talked <laughs> about one thing and the one thing like granted everything matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm just saying it's it's the one sliver of the pie that doesn't matter in terms of if that's all you talked about. Well, I'll part- tell you this. I uh, yesterday was feeling fearful that I might be coming a Theo bro. And so I went upstairs and shaved my beard. So oh, I like that. Yes. You're a good Midwestern farmer boy now. <laughs> I think part of the answer is why can't like, so the answer is why during uh, the life of grace in contrast to the life of glory, why can't we see the essence of God? And it's not like just, I don't think bluntly that because we have a body or because we're in the flesh, I think it's, we can only know things by composition. So when I see anything in the world, I know that it's a it's a combination of matter and form. It's the stuff that God created plus all the identifiable, uh, identifiable aspects of whatever that is. Yeah, or even a composition between existence and essence or something. Existence and essence is what I was trying to get at. I was just trying to get there through the simpler way. Um, so then when we think about God, because God is simple, we actually can't uncompose his essence and existence like every other thing that we see in the world. So if I see a dog, I can have this universal image in my mind, a similitude of what a dog is, that's universally applicable to other dogs, even though it's that one particular dog in front of me. Mm-hmm. Because I've decomposed the composition and recomposed it in my mind. And even in my mind, there's some sort of composition happening because that form of the dog is, say, activating my memory or whatever you want to say. So that's like the reason there's like an, there's a uh, impossibility for us to know God because he's the he is simple essence and existence. Right. Or not composed. You can't uncompose that and have a real image. What you do have is a, uh, a an analogous similitude that he's already talked about and will talk about again in future questions. So we can know true things about God, but we can't know him uh, essentially. But there does seem to be something in the life of glory that changes when, to use Paul's language, we have a spiritual body, not as Casper the friendly ghost, but as a new, incorrupt, immortal body that has some advantage. I just just want to take a sidestep here. Yeah, Uh, I'll bet you a large chunk of our audience, do you think they know who Casper the friendly ghost was? If they're cool... I, I don't so. know. <laughs> what are, what are, what's a, what's a newer uh you can share an image. What's a what's a newer ghost that people would know? I have no idea. Harry Potter ghosts or whatever. Jack, um, what's a, what's a go- my son's uh, sleeping okay. on the couch behind us. Yeah. What's a ghost that we would uh, be familiar with that like we could see him walking around? Like, did you ever watch Casper the Friendly Ghost? See, my son who's who's almost 14 doesn't know who Casper is. Not that 14-year-olds watch our podcast, but anyway. Ah, you <laughs> never know. What would be a ghost-like figure that, like, from like, is there anything in Harry Potter? Nearly headless Nick. Yeah, I that's how I start. I can remember saying. So here's Casper. So we're okay with that. Yeah. But nearly headless Nick. So our spiritual body is not nearly headless Nick, but <laughs> Nick. It's arguable that what is spiritual, what is uh, intellectual, is more real than what is physical. I think C.S. Lewis makes that argument. In what's the one where he goes to heaven and hell? Which Oh, um, I just read it. Uh, Great Divorce. The Great Divorce. I think he kind of makes the point that you're more real, the more intellectual you are, the more non-physical you are. Anyways, that's not really a point, but I think there's going to be something that goes on that will give us the capacity in our bodily spiritual existence to see as both angels do and as we do now. And therefore, you have this disposition to be able to um, perceive in a, in a way directly the essence of god i think that's so kind would, of what happens so then we would in the resurrection our our bodies and souls reunite so we're in that hylomorphic state again 
and uh, yet in 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 the state of glory, as opposed to the state of grace or state of nature, we could actually then through our bodies still have an actual knowledge of God's essence because we have like glorified or spiritual bodies. Like Dan- Daniel twelve, what is it? Daniel twelve three. Uh, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You had made a point, I think, what was it in First uh, Corinthians 2, and then again, you made 15. a link to 15 in the conversation we were having before that I thought was actually kind of helpful in terms of the ways that God, or Paul talks about, like, the natural or physical man versus the spiritual right, and right. those sorts of things. Like, what, what, three what categories. How, how, did those, how did those three... How did you make those three distinctions to me just a minute ago? Well, we're rather we're, we're in the flesh, so that's one category he uses. And even when you're in the flesh, you're still uh, uh, f- have a physical body. He says in Greek, a physical body. But then, by contrast, in First Corinthians two, if you're a Christian, you receive the Spirit of God. You already, by down payment, have a spiritual body. And then he argues in 1 Corinthians 15 that all of us who have a physical body, the down payment of the spiritual body from the from the inner man out, the outer man matches the inner man, and you have an entirely spiritual body, which in for Paul is pneumatiki. It's a from pneuma, which means spirit, and tiki is just the spiritual kind of idea. So there's something that we need to say that our inner and outer man in the resurrection are this become the same sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean you don't have a physical, you don't have a, a you know, flesh and any kind of thing happening. But Paul says flesh and blood do not inherit the kingdom of God. So we, we need to take his language seriously while affirming the bodily resurrection as he does. There's yeah. a transformation that happens in the, was it the twinkling of an eye? <laughs> uh, there is a seed that is planted in this physical body that grows into the full bloom of a tree, which is the spiritual body. There are bodies, but they're of different orders. One is more elevated or, or you might say fully bloomed. And I think what's going on is, is right now our inner man is renewed day by day while our outer man decays. And that inner man is able to, um, by by disposition, we'll, we'll read in Aquinas soon, receive by faith uh, divine intellect and uh, also love, which is the Holy Spirit. And as we, by habit, grow in knowledge and love, we grow in our capacity to know God, which means, as actually he'll argue in question 11 that some people will be able to experience the uh, beatific vision in a greater way and that's because by habitude they have been filled with christ in the spirit which is the same thing as saying grown in knowledge and love in this life that is the specific formality by which you grow in uh, christ in the spirit is by knowledge and love so anyways when you have the spiritual body i think what's going on is that so the the intermediate state you have a completely renewed inner man it's completely pneumatic but your outer man, which is decayed on here, which is just physical, we gets resurrected and becomes a pneumatiki outer man. And then you become essentially one. And you have this, the same vision that angels have and that you have now. You have the same vision uh, and capacity, therefore, to, in some uh, sort of unexplainable way, allow the essence of God to be directly perceived as the form of our knowledge. Yeah, so so what he would say then in terms of the relation of form and matter and how that relates to our our own intellects, right? So I have this cup of coffee here. The coffee is material, but it has the form of coffeeness in it. And so my the material uh, in pot- potency. Yeah, and 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 but like the 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 physical material cup can't enter obviously into my intellect, but the form of it can. So that I actually have oh, a yeah. real knowledge of it in my mind as an external object. So his realism. But, but you here, just separated form from existence, essence from existence when you did that. And therefore, that illustrates why you can know the coffee cup and not God. Yeah. Because it, once you do that, you've only known an illustration of God, which is still good knowledge. It's not bad. The Bible yeah. gives us all of that. It's all good. But it's not direct seeing. And that's why yeah. the Bible is really clear. In 1 Corinthians like 13, uh, we'll, you know, we'll see God. Um will be known by him as we're truly known and we'll know him as we ought to. Like all those kind of language that's drawn in yeah. scripture is language of the future. It was a new way of knowing because I think you'll be able to know God uh, as he is simply. Now it, it sparks a couple of thoughts, right? So if, if, if we know the form of a thing in our minds, the, the form actually enters into the mind. So we actually, there's like almost like a participation in, in the object that we know through the form God himself is pure form. And so in that state, then we actually 
the, the form of God actually resides in our minds, right? Which is, which is a God himself. Well, I wonder what else then it would mean in terms, so he's using participation language here, which is less on the Aristotle side, kind of more on the Platonist, Neoplatonist, Augustinian side of things. Um, but then it also makes me wonder, like, will he will he address this? I think I wonder either in terms of sections on Christology or the Trinity, you know, by our incorporation into Christ. Uh, so we're in union with Christ and he's the second person. You know, he's the incarnate form of the second person of the Godhead. And so the knowledge that Christ had, because Thomas will argue that Christ had the beatific vision in his earthly ministry. Uh, and so then. By virtue of being in Christ, does the knowledge that we will have that he's saying here that will be in the state of glory, will that actually be like Christ's own knowledge that he Great has? Question. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because there's a, a pretty. So does he argue that? I mean, maybe he suggests suggested a little bit in um uh, in question 92 of the supplement, but it doesn't. As far as I know, it doesn't appear that he makes it abundantly clear. But John Owen does in his Christologia, his uh, The Glory of Christ at the end of it. I need to read it, but he argues that um, there is, it's almost like a twofold. Let me read a quote from him in a different book, but I'll read the actual book later. What book is it? What book is it? Uh, and Vidu is the mission of God. Oh yeah. Okay. But um, I'm going to read a quote of, uh, I have the book on my shelf, but I'm not going to find the book. I'm going to read it in another book because, you know, I'm awesome that way. So this is John Owen. This beholding of the glory of Christ given him by his father. So this is Beatific vision, but seeing Christ. But then he says, is indeed subordinate unto the ultimate vision of the essence of God. So um, Owen has this idea that you, the, the beatific vision kind of begins through the humanity of Christ and then ends at the essence of God. So whether or not that's perceiving Christ in his humanity, and then that's how you see the essence, that might be what he's getting at. And th this also seems to be part of the debate that that's in the West and East on the vision. So for Aquinas, you essentially have essence, and then the persons, that's the, that's the two things that you can talk about. And you know the essence directly. And it's weird because you almost feel like, yeah, but isn't it Father, Son, and Spirit? Like, But then, of course, Aquinas believes that the Father, Son, and Spirit are subsistent relations. They are the essence, so it's the same thing. Like, it's not, he, he's just very um, minimalistic in his words, so he can say a lot in very few words. But the Eastern tradition is a little bit different. It's they're built out of uh, a huge debate with a guy named Eunomius in the late fourth century who argued that actually you can name the essence of God. There are certain words in the Bible that name the essence of God in particular. And this is a huge irony that the father is unbegotten, which is hilarious because that is actually not a name of God in the Bible. So he's kind of like owning himself in a sense, but the son is begotten is the idea. And then the father's unbegotten. And those are words that define the essence. Now, if, if they have different essences, begotten and unbegotten, then there is a distinction in essence, and therefore the son is not true God of true God, but he is God of God kind of idea. So yep. he's divine, but he is not true God of true God. So uh, when Gregory of Nyssa in particular and his brother Basil of Caesarea tackle this issue, uh, Gregory of Nyssa is who I'm more familiar with. So I'll just, you know, in fact, I even have a quote from Contra Unomia, I think, right in here. Um, Ooh, you're such a nerd. <laughs> nerd. Yes, I am. Uh, Glyman. So uh, Gregory of Nyssa, and this is funny because I've, you know, these are like, these are my people I finally get to talk about. Gregory of Nyssa says, look, when you um, meditate on God, you can't, his essence is actually unknowable. So his good friend, Gregory of Nazianzus says, the first thing that you need to know about theology is you can't name God. And by name, he means name the essence of God, not like the names of God in scripture. Right. And so Gregory of Nyssa says, you can't, but what you can know is his acts his divine acts and therefore see and infer his divine power his dunamis which for him is basically the same thing as usia or essence and so um this is what you can do so you can't really know the essence of god so there's this kind of apophatic negative theology well that gets developed over a few hundred years until you a few hundred years until you get to about 1200 if my memory serves and there's a guy named gregory pelamas of pelamas and he says look you have three things. You have the energia of God, which are the works of God. It's a Greek word. Uh, and then you have the persons of God or the hypostasis of God, which are Father, Son, and Spirit. And then the essence of God. Now, the way to know the persons is through the works of God. That's the argument of the Cappadocians. That's the argument of why the Trinity exists. It's through inseparable operations. But you'll never know the essence of God because that is uh, that is supra-essential, which is actually Dionysian uh, language. 
that we've already talked about. And yeah. Therefore, you can't see the essence of God, but there is a sense in which you can see more or less like the persons of God. So maybe you would say Christ. Uh, and you're and you're grad and you're as Gregor Nissel argues in his um book on the life of Moses, there's a gradual ascent even in the next life of this more and more knowledge of the persons of God as you move into deeper and deeper darkness, which is the essence of God, and you're thereby moved from one level of glory to another for eternity because the essence is ultimately unknowable and darker the closer you get, but therefore you're deified more and more. So that would be one view. And Aquinas is like, gee, that's really interesting, but we just know God. <laughs> Yeah, right. Face to face. And it's almost like Aquinas is a biblicist, you know, to use our language. And then these other guys, which are, they're not obviously unbiblical, but they are like trying to be like more philosophically astute, which I kind of find funny given the uh, modern day stereotypes. No, totally. Oh, and that's super helpful. Um, so, so there is then in Aquinas this idea that in some state, in some creaturely state, uh, we can actually really and truly know the essence of God. Uh, he's going to then ask in the third article, all right, so we, again, first article, and then we skip the second to the go, go to the third. Uh, and all we get here from Peter Kreeft is an objection, which seems to come from City of God, Augustine, and then reject uh, uh, the reply, which is basically just correcting the objection uh, in terms of like, hey, just like kind of read a little bit more. Uh, and then in the fourth, uh, article whether any created intellect by its natural powers can see the divine essence so this is going to kind of add another layer on to what we were just talking about right um and can the created intellect through its natural powers see the divine essence or does it need something what was well, he yeah, saying uh, he he argues i don't know if it's on an article but he argues that you need created grace or created light yeah, you need, you need, yeah, he talks, this is where he goes into this discussion about light. Uh, he talks about modes of knowing, uh, the need for this light, or uh, maybe light comes in later in another. It's a yeah, fifth article. Comes, it comes in the fifth. Um, and, uh, and, but what do you, but as you say, he, the, the stress is on grace here, right? So naturally speaking, so this is a relationship of nature and grace again, that he's classically known for. Uh, but he's going to argue, he said, it's impossible for any created intellect to see the essence of God by its own natural power. Right. Uh, by the light of nature, you might say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a natural knowledge, right? So for knowledge is regulated according to thing, the thing, as the thing known is in the knower. So this is that whole kind of cup form of things that I was talking about a minute ago with my coffee cup. But the thing known is in the knower according to the mode of the knower. Hence, the knowledge of every knower is ruled according to its own nature. Uh, and so then in, in the reply to objection three, he's going to say here in terms of uh, where's grace, he says, but our intellect or the or the angelic intellect, inasmuch as it is elevated above matter in its own nature, can be raised up above its own nature to a higher level by grace. Sorry, where does so, he say uh, angelic intellect? I think I missed that. Uh, one. It's a, a reply to objection three, which is on 116. Okay. Uh, it's like the third line down the beginning of the sentence. OK, yeah, I see that. So th these are these correspondences, right, between the intellect or the soul, the human soul, really, the rational soul, and then uh, the angels themselves, which are pure form or which are forms. Um, so he's saying here that uh, in order for then us to have that knowledge, it has to come by some sort of a divine aid, namely grace. Uh, he says the proof is that sight cannot in any way know abstractedly, which it knows concretely, which is really interesting to me. For no way uh, can it perceive a nature except as this one particular nature, whereas our intellect is able to consider abstractedly what it knows uh, concretely. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, although it knows things which have a form residing in matter, still it resolves the composite uh, into both of these elements, and it considers the form separately by itself. Likewise, also the by necessity, can... like the cop, you don't have a you don't have a physical coffee coffee cup in your brain by necessity. Yeah. You only can create the image of it in your mind. Right. So that's all he's saying. It's so unclear because he sounds it sounds weird, but it's literally like the most yeah. straightforward common sense thing humanly possible. Like there's no actual coffee cup in your brain. You just have the image of it. And that's the form, the image, the shape, the structure of it. That's all he's saying. So right. Right. Which, is, which is in a sense more real than just the physical thing. Right. Oh, it's universally it's, real because I can have yeah. that same image. We're sharing that same image right now, even though there's only one material cup. But sorry, keep going. I just thought. 
yeah, this, this, that I thought that might be useful. I just, I just love how this all goes. So he says, now, although it knows things which have a form residing in matter, still it resolves the composite into both these elements and it considers the form separately by itself. Likewise, also the intellect of an angel, although it naturally knows the concrete in any nature, still it is able to separate the existence by its intellect, since it knows that the thing itself is one thing and its existence is another. Since, therefore, the created intellect is naturally capable of apprehending the concrete form and the concrete being abstractedly by way of a kind of resolution of parts, it can by grace be raised up to no separate subsisting substance and separate subsisting existence. So that's interesting to me, right? So that you, so the, so that it seems like what he's saying is that the intellect can know these abstracted things, right? Because it's like it's like a higher higher form of or higher way of knowing, and uh, and so then uh, the mind can actually like access uh, these ways. There's something, and but it has to be done by God's grace. Well, uh, I'm losing the connection well, here. Well, here, but here by well, by grace, you know that God is who he is. You can know the existence of God. And he's going to argue at the very end that everybody can know the Although existence. Although he doesn't say that you can know God. He says the only thing you can know really naturally, this is what he's arguing in yeah. the earlier part, right? Is you can really only know his existence and certain elements of his attributes. Uh, right. Whereas this is like, we're talking about the essence right? Uh, that you can know by grace because of this kind of elevated way of knowing. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we'll get to the very end where he talks about that, but I think you're able to separate these two things. And you can kind of infer back to God's substance. That's what scripture is doing. But by yeah. nature, you can only know that he, that he exists. So I guess we'll, we'll figure out at the very end. I think the fifth article, though, maybe will help us piece some of the ideas together because I'm not. Uh, it is kind of a bit heady. Um, citing, you know, uh, Psalms. Uh, well, I think it's in English, Psalm 36. In your light, we will see light. He is trying to say that we, when you get to heaven... The only way that you can possibly know God's essence is if God creates created light, the sort of created intellectual light. So it's not literal in the sense of a light beam, like a material light. It's a metaphor for some sort of media or medium by which God allows us to have the sort of habit or disposition to rise above our nature and our nature as this hylomorphic creature, or in Paul's language, our nature, our physical nature, is elevated to a spiritual nature. So it's planted a physical nature and resurrected, Paul says, as a spiritual nature. Right. Or there's different hierarchies of sun and moon and stars. He goes to this whole list in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the kind of thing that he's getting at when he means above its nature. It's, it's interesting, too, though, how he like describes in the reply to Objection 2 on page top of 117. Uh, he says that... Uh, that this light is like has like this like strengthening quality for the it intellect. Perfects right? the intellect. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he says, uh, as a perfection of the intellect, it strengthens it to be able to see God. Therefore, it may be said that this light is to be described not as a medium in which God is seen, but as one yeah. by which He is seen. So it's actually it's the opposite like, oh, of what I just said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and such a medium does not take away the immediate vision of God. Wait. Therefore, it may be said that this light. Is to be described not as a medium in which it is in which God is seen, but as and one such by a medium. By, <laughs> what? Am I, <laughs> so I was right, and you were right, and Aquinas is right, and right, and we're all right. Uh, That's hilarious. Me, and such a medium does not take yeah. away the immediate vision of God. This, I think this is where we get screwy with like Peter Creep editing this thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what he's saying there's there's a meat. So there's there's two things that I think I was trying to say media in terms of like. The way in which we perceive, but there's also medium like, um, uh, like the thing between, or like the, like the non-immediate. Like it's almost like, oh, like Nate, like when he's saying we know God by His effects, the effects mediate that knowledge. Yeah, yeah, there's a mediated knowledge. I think I, it's almost like the way I'm envisioning it is that you're, it's like you're in the you're swimming in water. Water is like the the light around you, but there's nothing blocking you from grabbing a seashell. It's, yeah. it's making it available to you. Um, but the idea of perfecting your intellect's interesting. Because the intellect, uh, you know, more or less, if I understand him correctly, and I may not at this point, um, we can always ask Ryan Hurd when, when we get back on, <laughs> yeah. is that the essence of God fully actualizes our intellect so that it becomes all in act. Okay. And therefore, it is perfected and elevated. And then that the, the, the way in which our intellect then works for now on in heaven 
is to be fully actualized by the divine essence. It is the form of our intellect. It's like something along those lines. And it seems like that's kind of what he's about to get, if, if I remember, in the next article. Um, yeah, because he says... Articles. Yeah, we, he'll say uh, whether of those who see the essence of God one sees more perfectly than another. That was also interesting, too, because he's basically arguing, yeah, there are degrees um, right. of, of, of that kind of knowledge uh, of God that we'll have, right? So he says of those who see the essence of God, one sees him more perfectly than another, because one intellect will have a greater power or faculty to see than another. The faculty of seeing, however, does not belong to the created intellect naturally, but it is given to it by the light of glory which establishes the intellect in a kind of deformity. So like the con like being conformed or formed into God, uh, as appears from what he said above in the preceding article. Hence, the intellect, which has more of the light of glory, uh, will see God the more perfectly, and he will have a fuller participation of the light of glory, who has more charity, uh, because where there is greater charity, there is more desire. Um, so the idea of charity or love here. And, and so he's making the case then that... Um, that in the in the in the beatific vision some like me will have a higher level of of, of perfected knowledge as opposed nice. to others like you who will see things more darkly no i like it that's right yeah um yeah and he'll and he'll get into this that the charity is essentially the way in the form of the form that the holy spirit comes to us there's like he'll get into the argument but the the idea is that as we grow in this life now by growth and knowledge by growth and love by growth in the fruit of the spirit all this kind of stuff we are more or less uh, creating a disposition to make us more open to see God. Yeah. And so all the works we do matter in the next life because they're not aimless or useless. They matter. Like it might be that there's a nuclear war and Canada's gone next year, but the works of charity that I do, the love that I have for myself and others, and that spills over so they love more, et cetera. So it's not just a selfish thing. Well, actually... Uh, redound until my next life, even if I die next year, my body is separated from my soul, because through that habitude or disposition of charity, I have a fuller and more clear vision when I get to heaven. And then yeah. that'll grow and grow. Like what has Paul been doing for 2000 years? Well, I think he's been growing that disposition of love and knowledge. And therefore he's having a fuller picture of God. It's interesting to me too, when you think of like Thomas himself and, and how much he knew in his own life, <laughs> And how much he was really kind of filled with that sort of charity. Like, my goodness, what will he or Augustine or Calvin or, you know, these deep, deep thinkers who were very shaped by their, you know, in their souls, by their thinking, man, what are they going to be seeing in the eschaton? And I'm never going to see. <laughs> right. He even actually ties faith, hope and love in, in the next. Um, yeah. Yeah. A little bit there, too. Yeah, he, um, ground, he grounds the, the idea of comprehension of God in hope. Well, because here's the thing, like you can't really comprehend God in terms of like, because he's incomprehensible, but uh, the theological virtues, he's going to get into this more. So I don't want to like get, make a distinction between two types of comprehension, right? Yeah. So, yeah, but just the, but the idea is the theological virtues are the way in which we, like a lot of times people think like, how do I grow in the Christian life? And it's like, okay, there's a gift of faith and a gift of love. What are those? Well, the gift of faith is the, is, is the gift of Christ so that uh, you receive what you truly have faith in. And as he comes and dwells in you, you say, it's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. And the gift of the spirit is, is the gift of what essentially the fruit of the spirit, charity, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, Romans 5. And the more we grow in that, the more we, we're literally coming to know God more by loving more. <laughs> like love yeah. is not just like for the feels, although that's part of it. Love is genuinely, when love informs faith, so faith working through love, as Paul says, we are growing in our experience of God. That's the created form. Like, because we're created, so we can't see the uncreated God immediately like we're talking about. But before then, we're preparing by that, by experiencing the love, love and faith. And then hope is, you know, realizing that all that. So that's the true and exact way in which we experience God now is a growing sense of knowledge or faith and a growing sense of charity or love. And when that's growing in you, that experience of it and those actions that we do, we are becoming more capacious so that God can indwell us in a fuller way. We're filled with the spirit. And so people who are like, you'd say 10 years later, seem to love God more and be full of joy and happiness, all those kinds of things. They are literally fuller of God. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like, it's not like, no, in the sense of they're created mediums, like love is a created medium 
and faith is created medium. Eventually, those things will be immediate. Um, and that's what we're getting at when it comes to the essence of God. But I, th I think people get so confused on this. You're like, just, dude, read it Galatians 5. What, what is this? What is the fruit of the spirit? That's how you are being more capacious for God. Yeah. Um, in, in the in the eighth article, then, too, he's like, because some of this stuff, like even what you're talking about now, kind of could, in a sense, uh, if we're not if we're not careful or somebody's mishearing it could could kind of sound in a way like there's a there's a there's a blurring of the creator creature distinction no it's always um, a created medium yeah but i mean even in even in the eighth article right he's gonna say here he's gonna ask the question whether those who see the essence of god so those who are the blessed uh see all in god so this idea is like can can we actually like know god in his fullness in terms of you know his his is his eternal being or or, or whatnot um he's going to say that um uh, the angels see the essence of god yet do not know all things no created intellect can comprehend god wholly as shown above uh, therefore no created intellect in seeing god can know all that god does or can do for this would be to comprehend his power and so he's basically arguing no god god is not uh like us he's he's you know as as an infinite being, our finite minds cannot, you know, comprehend him in his fullness, even though we can actually have a true comprehension of him. Uh, and so, therefore, kind of in, in in a sense, if there was a fear at this point of any kind of blurring of the line between uh, God the Creator and us as His creation, this is reminding us again that God is is so utterly unlike us. I think um, as I'm kind of scanning through this again, if, if you go to the eleventh article, the next one. Yeah. This is where I think he gets really clear um, and summarizes a lot of what, what we've been saying. So he says, on, on the contrary, it is written, man shall not see me and live. And a gloss upon this says, in this mortal life, God can be seen by certain images, but not by the likeness itself of his own nature. Like the snake on the pole or lightning or fire, like in the brush. All those are created images that signify his nature. Uh, then so says, would, that, would that include the the physical person of Jesus his in his human his human nature? Yes. You think? Okay. Um, I answered that. Sound confident in no, that. Well, uh, I just <laughs> I, I I say yes, but I was trying to like uh, rattle my brain. Oh, am I like saying some historic heresy where like a Presbyterian hate me because of you know the the second <laughs> commandment? Yeah, the I mean this uh, the second yeah the interesting so there's something more because the created human nature is united to the word. So there's something more like it's unique, but it, there's a, there's a likeness between that, I think. Yeah. So I answer that God cannot be seen in his essence by a mere human being, except he be separated from this mortal life. Right. So you're, so basically your body's here and your soul's up. The reason is because as was said above, the mode of no knowledge follows the mode of the nature of the knower. So if we have a composition of a physical nature and a spiritual or intellectual nature that's a problem but our soul as long as we live in this life has its own corporeal matter hence, so that's a body hence naturally it know it knows only what has a form in matter so everything we see as a form in matter is no no exception i guess unless you saw an angel but we can't see that yet uh, unless the angel has a created form yeah. or what can be known by such a form now it is evident that the divine essence cannot be known through the nature of material things like straightforwardly, we already know that. For it was shown above that the knowledge of God by means of any created similitude is not the vision of his essence as an effect. Hence, it is impossible for the soul of a man in this life to see the essence of God. Like we can't do that because you could you could only abstract the form, but God is form and he's simple and we don't have the credit capacity to, to extract the existence and form from God, etc. Like it doesn't work. He's not that. He's simple. All things are said to be seen in God and all things are judged in him because by the participation of his light, we know and judge all things for the light of natural reason itself is a participation in the divine light. As likewise, we are said to see and judge of sensible things in the sun that is by the sun's light. Hence, Augustine says the lessons of instruction can be can only be seen as it were by their own son, namely God. And therefore, in order to see a sensible object, so anything our senses can, can, can see, it is not necessary to see the substance of the sun. So in like manner, to see any intelligible object is not necessary to see the essence of God. So he's kind of going uh, nuts here. But eventually he's, he's arguing the point that in your created body, you can't directly see the essence of God because we don't have the created capacity to do that. Since God is a simple form, spiritual nature, 
and currently were composed and know things only by decomposing a composition, abstracting a form from matter, or extracting essence from existence, or go through the whole list that he goes through, then we can't uh, see God unless something changes. Well, and it, it makes sense too, right? Like if what he's saying there, uh, right near the end of the I answer that, he says that the knowledge of God by means of any created similitude is not the vision of his essence. Uh, and hence it is impossible for the soul of man in this life to see the essence of God, right? Because what 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 he's what he's argued earlier is that the knowledge of God that we have through like that that matter or through that the, you know the created uh, um, through the creation itself is indirect knowledge. And here he's talking about having direct knowledge. And so mm-hmm. if by definition anything material can't give to you a direct knowledge, but only indirect, it would make sense that it couldn't. Uh, uh, and so he has to answer the question this way. But he's saying here at the same time, in terms of like what he's talked about already about the sun's light, and then quoting Augustine, he says, in order to see a sensible object, it's not necessarily to see the substance of the sun in order to actually see it because you see it through its light. Right. Um, right. And so likewise with, uh, with, with, with God in that sense. This is, is something like, this is just stuff where like, even as we're talking, I'm like trying to like process it through it. And it's just like, yeah, as we're talking, I'm realizing this is a harder one than I that I thought because some of the implications start popping around. Because <laughs> sure. I, I was like, okay, whatever, we just talk through it. Um, so this could be something that we have to like go back to, like, oh, that's what he was saying more clearly. But I think I think we're getting the gist of what he what he's getting at. Now, I find the last article that's at least in Chris really, 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 really interesting because he asked the question, "What can be known in this life, therefore the life of grace, by natural reason?" And this is so important because a lot. I know. Of- is it that like you said there was a life of grace, though? Is it though? Um, well, I guess in this, because uh, if, even if he's making the appeal to Romans one nineteen, this is universal. Speaking, yeah, it's more universal than yeah. just for those. You're right, who- the natural life, like natural. But yeah. I guess the point I was trying to get across, I just said that poorly, is like a lot of people accuse Thomas of being uh, of creating a natural theology that either doesn't need the Bible or can be in conflict with the Bible or, or something like that, which we've already established. If you just read literally the first couple questions, right? It's that's incorrect. But here he's very clear. There are only some few things you can know by natural reason and uh, by sensible things. And he bases it off Romans one nineteen that which is known of God, namely what can be known of God by natural reason is manifest in them, you know, through the things that are made. And he kind of gives a list, if you go to the next page, of, what is it, five things? Right. Um, But because they are his effects, so effects are things he's created, and depend on their cause, because he's the cause of everything, we can be led from the created things back to know God. So I I just kind of paraphrase that. And you can know these five things. One, whether he exists and to know of him. Two, what must necessarily belong to him as the first cause of all things, exceeding all things caused by him. So God is greater than everything because he made it. Hence, we know three, his relationship with creatures as far uh, so far as to be the cause of them all, i.e. is the creator. Also four, that creatures differ from him in as much as he is not in any way part of what is caused by him. And five, that creatures are not removed from him by any reason of any defect on his part, but because he super exceeds them all. If you're really just going to dumb it down, you can know from the created order that God exists and that he created everything. And yeah. we're, we're not him. The creator yeah. creature distinction is is there, and like, like that's pretty minimal, and yet that's exactly what Paul argues in Romans one. If you go through it, uh, there's we're the creatures. <laughs> we exchange the glory of the of the immortal God for the image of creatures. He says, uh, we sin. We know His divine commandment because He's our creator, but we 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 disobey it, and we even cheer people on to do evil things. But we know His commandment. Romans one thirty two. His righteous commandment um, that through the things that are made, because he made them, we can know his divine power and so on. So it's like, it's literally just the words that Paul says and that's yeah. it. So he doesn't say you can know faith, hope, and love. He doesn't say you can know the Trinity. He doesn't say that you can know the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say all this kind of other stuff that are necessary for salvation, just for example. But he's very, uh, I think, clear. He's, he's trying to argue you can't know the divine essence by nature, but it still interacts with this kind of criticism with him that he's this natural theology guru. Right. Uh, and I, I like how he says it too. It, it, it gives you a reason, a further reason to understand the, the creator creature distinction. 
uh, he says that uh, cre cre uh, on number four there on 122, uh, that creatures differ from him in as much as he is not in any way part of what is caused by him, right? It would be very strange if he's the first cause and the universe and everything in it is an effect of that first cause. He is the first cause can't then become an effect, right? That makes absolutely no sense. An effect caused by himself, that, that's nonsense. So as the first cause, he has to be utterly different and separate than everything else that he's created just by nature of what a first cause is. I mean, even just the definition of creature, he must be uncreated. Like he, right. he can't be a creature. Like, so there's even just the basic def like relational distinction is so utterly clear just by basic logic. If he created everything, he can't be a creature and we're creatures. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this was, like, I guess, a bit of a headier section. And he seems like uh, it's a bit of a pause between uh, what we can know about God and simplicity, which is the basic philosophical things. This is how we come to know God. It's the epistemological stuff. And then we're going to get into, I think, more or less names. the names of God in scripture, right? That's going to be a hard one too, I think. <laughs> Easy peasy. I've already read through it. Lucky Barely 13, man. Lucky 13. Uh, there's a cool chart on page 135 that Kreef gives us about knowledge. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, God's own knowledge. Oh, my God. Yeah, some of these ones, they're, they're fun, but it's just like, this, this is the stuff where you just, your head... You just need to slow down and really contemplate what's going on here. But anyway, glad we're doing it together. It's fun. So I'd vote that we tr we try to do 13 and 14, but we might just do 13. Okay. How, <laughs> how dumb we fight. Because <laughs> I kind of feel dumb on this one. So I was like, maybe I should have put a little bit more. Uh... It's crazy because I read this. I read like some other background stuff on it. I'm like, man, yeah, I read and it's like, I've read it before. And I'm still like, what's that? Yeah, I read a couple of things on it. But then as I was talking, I'm like, I don't. No. <laughs> so anyways. So basically what we're just telling people at this point is just abandon ship. Stop listening to our podcast. We're just a couple of idiots. That's just trying yeah. to work through something. Ian only shaved to pretend that he wasn't a Theo bro, but we're just, we're, I'm, listen, I, 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 just I, official hair. I am, I am as ignorant as any good Theo bro should be. <laughs> I affirm that you are as ignorant as any good Theo bro. I like that. Yeah. Now um, I just got rid of the beard. So nobody <laughs>